Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. While you're turning there, I want to give you a little update. We did have our hayride and s'mores last night. We had around 50 people here for that, including eight guests, and just had a really good time of fellowship. God gave us a really nice fall evening for our hayride, so we're very thankful for that. It's a good time. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you that it is perfect and true and, and trustworthy in every way. And Lord, um, you know this has been a, a somewhat difficult text for me to prepare, but I pray, Lord, that you would take it and use it for our good and for your glory. We know that you will. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I want to begin with a question this morning. Have you ever found yourself saying, good grief? A lot in 2020, right? Good grief. I will admit I have been known to use that expression now and then. Usually it's when I hear bad news or I'm confronted with some situation that flusters me. Uh, this week we had a dripping faucet in one of our bathtubs, and so the kids were complaining about it, and so I went to Lowe's and got a new faucet and came home and put it in and thought it was fixed, and a few hours later, guess what? Drip, drip. Oh, I was flustered. And I said, good grief. And the other thing I say is, you've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> to tell you the truth, when I hear that expression, good grief, I often think about the Peanuts character, Charlie Brown, how he used to say that when something would go wrong, or sometimes Lucy would say it to him, right? Good grief, Charlie Brown. But have you ever stopped to think about what that expression really means? Because on the surface, it seems like an oxymoron. It seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? How can grief be good. Grief is usually considered bad, isn't it? To truly grieve is to be sad. It's to be heartbroken. To grieve is to be deeply hurt in some way. Why then would anyone say that grief can be good? And yet that is precisely the case that Solomon makes in our text today. The title of today's sermon is Finding the Good in Grief. And just as a heads up, today's text will challenge the way that you think about things. In fact, you may find yourself this morning, if you're like me, mentally pushing back against some of the suppositions that Solomon puts forward in this text. But do remember, this isn't merely Solomon's word. This is the word of God. It is perfect and true and trustworthy. And so I would encourage you this morning to open your heart to what this passage says about grief and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you and to minister to you today. So let's get started by looking at the very first truth in this passage declared in chapter 7 and verse 1. Here's what Solomon writes. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. All right, let's talk about this. Verse 1 is written in the style of a proverb. It employs a literary structure common to proverbs known as parallelism. In other words, there are two parallel statements here that correlate to one another and work off one another to make a point. 
They're related. You can't separate this verse into two different points or teachings. It's the same point. The first statement in verse 1, I think we'd all agree with, is that a good name is better than precious ointment. Or you might say a good name is better than expensive perfume. Even if you can't afford Chanel or Armani or DKNY, I had to Google all of those. I did. <laughs> Rachel gets me a bottle of Adidas once a year and gets me another one the next year. So, but Even if you can't afford expensive perfume or cologne, you can have a good name. You can be known for honesty and integrity and being a caring and generous person. And in the end, that's far more valuable than expensive perfume or cologne because it leaves an aroma that's far sweeter and lasts much longer, even after you're gone. The underlying principle here is that the honor of a good name or a good reputation is superior to any superficial or material possession. So how does the second part of this verse, the parallel statement that runs alongside it, support this principle? Solomon implies that it is for this same reason that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Let me explain what I think he means by that. The day of one's birth and the celebration of that day each subsequent year are exciting. There's a party, there's cake, there are gifts. And while everyone's happy at a birthday party, and these things are all good, they're also fleeting. The cake gets eaten, the presents eventually, most of them, get lost or put into a yard sale at some point, and life goes on. In contrast, on the day you die, or on your funeral day, if you've spent your life loving the Lord and loving people, your friends and family are typically going to come together and honor your good name and remember who you were as a person and the positive impact that you made on their life, which in the end is far more valuable than cake and presents. And this way Solomon would say a funeral is better than a birthday party. This is where we tend to push back a little bit and say, now hold up, Solomon. <laughs> I don't know about all of that. Let's not take this too far. You'd have to be pretty morbid, have to be a pretty depressing individual to say that a funeral is better than a birthday party. We want to be happy, not sad. We want to sing and laugh with our friends, not cry. And just to clarify, Solomon is not saying there's never a time for a party. He's not saying there's never a time for joy and laughter and silliness. There certainly is. There's a time for everything. Isn't that what we learned in chapter 3? There's even a time to be a party animal, I suppose. But Solomon's point in verse 1 and the remainder of this passage is don't overlook the good that can be found in grief. And so I would encourage us, let's just hear Solomon out this morning and let's keep an open mind because he's going to elaborate on this further in the following verses. He's going to make some points that we need to hear about why grief can be good for us and even be a gift of God's grace. For the next few minutes, I want us to consider three ways from this passage in which grief can be good. And we find the first way in verse 2. Look at verse 2. 
Solomon continues, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Here's how we summarize that. Here's the first reason why grief can be good. Grief causes us to reflect on our life. Solomon says the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. To state it another way, might think of it this way, a visitation at a funeral home is in some ways more beneficial for us to attend than a party at a friend's home. Why is that the case? Well, because unless you pull off a weekend at Bernie scenario, the last stop for your body before the grave is going to be that funeral home and not that party at your friend's home. Verse 2 says the living will, or some translations say should, take this truth to heart. What does it mean to take something to heart? Well, it means to reflect on it. It means to ponder. Mourning and grieving by its very nature is reflective. They cause us to reflect upon our life. For instance, one statement that I often make when preaching a funeral is that ceremonies such as this serve to remind us all of our own mortality. Unless you're purposely detaching yourself, you can't attend a funeral and see that person lying in the casket without saying, thinking somewhere in the back of your mind, that will be me one day. And then reflecting upon your own life. Now, we don't always like to do that because we don't like to confront our mortality, for one thing. And sometimes when we look back on our life, we don't like what we see. But it's important that we do that. In contrast, when we go to a party, when we attend a feast or a celebration, we're really not thinking about our mortality at all. We're not reflecting on anything. We're just having a good time and living in the moment. And again, I want to emphasize Solomon's not saying that it's bad or wrong to live in the moment and just enjoy life sometimes, so long as you don't sin in doing so. In fact, Solomon says multiple times in this book that man should eat and drink and be merry. So we don't always have to be serious and somber. That's not the message this morning. But Solomon would also say we're doing ourselves a disservice if we never take time to seriously reflect on the direction of our life and on the mortality of our own heart. Being in the house of mourning, allowing ourselves to grieve and be around those who are grieving affords us this opportunity. One man sums it up this way. We are more likely to gain insight when face-to-face with eternal things than in noisy company where the deeper realities of life are drowned in food and drink and levity. Let me ask you this. When is the last time that you entered the house of mourning? When is the last time that you came face-to-face with eternal things and took such things to heart? I would encourage you, don't be so busy and so callous that you never pause to mourn, that you never slow down to grieve. God can use such times to teach us and to grow us if we will let him. Grief can be good if it causes us to reflect upon our life. Well, if you think Solomon is off his rocker so far in saying that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, that the visitation at the funeral home is better for us in some ways than the party at the friend's home, just wait until you hear what he says next. Look at verse 3. 
sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Here's how we summarize that. Grief facilitates healing. Grief facilitates healing. All right. How in the world can sorrow be better than laughter? Who would say such a thing? What kind of demented person would make such a claim? Now, those of us who appreciate old country music can understand this, can't we? Because when Hank Williams comes on my playlist and sings, Hear that lonesome whippoorwill. Sounds too blue to fly. I'm so lonesome I could cry. It's just medicine to my bones. I just sit there and listen to that and howl like a dog. I love it. And Rachel hears it and says, how can you like music that is that sad? And sometimes I explain to her a sad song is good for the heart. That's essentially what Solomon says here in verse 3. But again, he's not saying it's always better. I point you back again to chapter 3. There's a time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time to be happy. There is a time to throw one's head back and belly laugh. There is a time to dance like Snoopy on his doghouse, to come back to the Charlie Brown analogy. But sometimes that's not what the heart needs. Sometimes the heart needs to sorrow. Sometimes the heart needs to be sad. Sometimes the heart needs a gray, rainy fall day. And that's not something we should feel bad about. Sadness is part of being human. Even Jesus wept, the scripture tells us. So we need to understand that experiencing grief is not something to feel guilty about or something that makes us a lesser Christian, but rather grief facilitates healing. By a bad, or excuse me, by a sad countenance, the heart is made better, or the heart is made well. We feel better after a good cry, don't we? Why? Because expressing grief is healing. That's the way that God designed it. And never forget what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Christian, always know when you are sad, when the tears flow down your cheeks, God is near. He loves his children, and he will bring comfort. Like a loving father puts that child on his lap and says, here now, it'll be better. That's what God does for us. In God's way, grief facilitates healing. Let's look at the last verse, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Here's the third way in which grief can be good. Grief teaches us wisdom. Grief teaches us wisdom. What does Solomon mean when he says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning? Well, he's saying, as, as one commentator puts it, that true wisdom is developed in the crucible of life's trials. Very likely, if you go to the source of whatever wisdom God has granted you to this point in your life, you're not going to be going back to good times, are you? 
You're not going to be going back to easy times or pleasurable times. You're going to be going back to the hard times, the difficult season, the time that brought mourning and grieving and tears. And as hard as those times were in the moment, looking back, we can see that this is indeed where God taught us valuable life lessons in our grief, in our sorrow, God teaches us wisdom. I love this poem by Robert Browning that articulates this very truth. Listen to this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Some of you may be walking with sorrow this very day. You've had a rough time of it. You've had a rough go of it. But here's what you have to know. And here's what you have to believe if you're a child of God. God is using these difficult times in your life not only to teach you wisdom, but for your sanctification, which makes you more like Jesus. You must believe that. And you must trust him that he loves you and that he has your best interest at heart. And that one day you're going to look back and say, you know, that time of trial was really hard, but God used it. He used it to make me wiser. He used it to make me more like Jesus. And without going through that time, I wouldn't be who I am today. And I wouldn't be where I am today. Let's summarize what we've learned thus far. These three ways that grief can be good. You see them on the screen. Grief causes us to reflect on our life. Grief facilitates healing. Grief teaches us wisdom. Now, based on these three truths that we've learned today, I want to close by giving you two encouragements. I want to encourage you in two primary ways. First, in all these three ways that we've discussed this morning, we see that grief, that, that sorrow, that mourning, whatever term you want to use, as much as we don't like it and as much as we seek to avoid it, can actually be a gift of God's grace upon us if it ultimately makes us more like Jesus. That being true, I encourage you to look for the good in grief and to trust that God is using your grief to conform you to the very image of Christ. If we belong to Jesus, the grief that we experience in this world is not in vain. Second, I want to encourage you that grief is a temporary reality for the Christian. Be assured, there is coming a day when Scripture says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we will find complete joy and peace in Him. And in that day, grief will be no more. It will be gone forever. Sadness will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. But in order for that reality to apply to us, we must trust in Christ as our Savior and our Lord. The Bible teaches if we'll repent of our sin, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, calling upon His name, that He will save us, that He will give us eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can take our grief and use it for good. There is no such thing as good grief. 
outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I would simply ask you, do you know him? Have you committed your life to him? If not, you need to do that today. In fact, you can do that right now from your heart. Call out to Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe in you. I turn from my sin. Please save me, and he will save you this very moment. If you're here today and you're ready to commit your life to Jesus or have any questions about that, please find me, find Pastor Bill, find any mature believer in this room before you leave today and let us know. And it would be our privilege to talk with you and to pray with you. Well, I'm going to ask our musicians to come back on the stage at this point, and we're going to close today with a great hymn of the faith, a hymn with great lyrics. As we've talked about grief today, we have to admit there are things that happen in life that do bring us grief and sorrow, and many of these things we don't understand, and we probably won't understand until we get to heaven and can ask the Lord himself. But the most important thing for us to remember is we know who holds the future, don't we? And we know that he will never, ever let go of us. Let's stand. Let's sing this great song together. I know who holds tomorrow.